there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. Happy Valentine's Day! If you don't have a Valentine today, I'm your Valentine now. And while we celebrate this day of love, I want to bring your attention back to something that, yes, should be talked about every day, but especially today, and that's domestic abuse. If you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, you may remember that I recently got out of an abusive relationship that culminated in me filing a restraining order. Unfortunately, that was actually my second abusive relationship, so it's really important to me to talk about, and since our goal is to celebrate healthy love today, I want to take this moment to give you a refresher on what domestic violence is. Domestic violence can be physical, sexual, emotional, economic, psychological, or technological actions or threat of actions or other patterns of coercive behavior that influence another person within an intimate partner relationship. This includes any behaviors that intimidate, manipulate, humiliate, isolate, frighten, terrorize, coerce, threaten, blame, hurt, injure, or wound somebody. Domestic violence can happen to anyone regardless of race, age, sexual orientation, religion, or gender identity. Domestic violence affects people of all socioeconomic backgrounds and education levels. Domestic violence occurs in both opposite-sex and same-sex relationships and can happen to intimate partners who are married, living together, dating, or share a child. Take it from someone who minimized their own abuse the first time around, your partner doesn't have to put their hands on you for you to be in an abusive relationship. If they constantly put you down and make you feel bad about yourself, that's abuse. If they threaten to kill themselves regularly when you get into a disagreement, that's abuse. If they throw things and break things and yell at you when they're upset, that's abuse. Trust me, it can start as them throwing and breaking objects or punching walls, but one day you will be that object they put their hands on because it's the next step in escalation. Every time my abusive ex broke things in our apartment, I felt that I would be next, and I was, when he put his hands on me and tried to strangle me one day. And yes, the bruises and the blood fade away, but the scars it leaves behind can linger and severely affect your day-to-day life without getting any help. It's easy to feel like you're alone when you're going through this because these abusive people, for the most part, know to only do it when they're alone with you. This also adds to your feelings of going crazy because when you sit down to catalog their patterns of behavior, you start to realize that you were the sole witness and on the receiving end of the abuse. I'm here to reaffirm to you that you're not crazy and you're not alone. The National Domestic Abuse Hotline number is 800-799-7233 or you can text START to 88788. Please remember that you are worthy of love and a person that is abusing you in any way does not truly love you. I also want to give a trigger warning for this episode because there's domestic abuse involved in the case we'll be talking about today. My primary source for this episode comes from Jeremy Craddock's book titled The Jigsaw Murders. If this story intrigues you, I highly recommend reading the book because it gets into even more detail and you really get a glimpse into these people's lives, as well as a lot of the details on how the case revolutionized forensic science, which we'll be talking about a little here today. Plus, it does have details about the trial if you like hearing the court side of stories. As per usual, my sources will be in the show notes, but first, I do need your help finding another missing Indigenous woman. Kiara Lavinia Henry was last seen in Maui, Hawaii on July 21, 2019. She's from San Diego, California, and had come to Maui on vacation. 
At 2 p.m. that day, she rented a car for one night to visit a state park in Hana. She's never been heard from again. On July 23rd, her rental car was found abandoned in a gravel parking lot at that state park. Her luggage, credit card, and identification were inside it, but her car keys, cell phone, and a small backpack were missing and have never been located. The mileage in the car indicated it had been driven directly from the rental agency to the park. On July 29th, she missed her scheduled flight home. Kiara's family doesn't believe she left of her own accord, as she was close to them. Her father described her as a very adventurous young woman who enjoys hiking in the outdoors and is a vegan. Her case remains unsolved. Kiara has brown hair, brown eyes, is 5'2", and weighs 105 pounds. She's enrolled with the Sikwan Band of the Kumeye Nation. Her ears are pierced and her nose had once been pierced, but she wasn't wearing a nose ring at the time of her disappearance. She has a tattoo of sunflowers on her upper right arm and a tattoo of praying hands on her right arm just above the elbow. If you have any information on Kiara's whereabouts, please contact the Maui County Police Department at 808-244-6400. The Devil's Beef Tub is a remote natural landmark in the Scottish town of Moffat. It's 500 feet deep and formed by the four hills that surround it. It was aptly named by the raiders who, for centuries, stole cattle and hid them in the chasm. It had its own little history plagued by death, starting with allegedly being the place where Scottish freedom writer William Wallace planned his first attack on the English in 1297. Then, in the 17th century, it was where John Hunter was shot by English soldiers due to his religious beliefs. But now, a fresh, altogether more gruesome horror had been uncovered in the dying days of September 1935, a mile or so south of the Devil's Beef Tub. This discovery would forever link the spot with death in the public eye. A deep ravine between the Devil's Beef Tub and Moffat, called Gardenholm Lynn, would soon be notorious around the world. On the morning of Sunday, September 29th, a young woman went walking with her mother. As they walked, bundled up to stave off the autumn chill, the young woman peered over the ravine as they walked by. She spotted a bundle lying on the banks of the stream, about 80 feet below. She screamed upon realizing there was an arm protruding from the bundle. Sergeant Robert Sloan arrived on the scene promptly, meeting Police Constable James Fairweather at the ravine at 3.40 p.m. The men made their way to the bottom of the ravine carefully. Sergeant Sloan found four bundles. Wrapped in newspaper were two heads, a femur, and two arms. The top of the fingers and top of the thumbs were missing, and there were several pieces of flesh and skin lying loose. One of the heads was wrapped in a baby's romper and tied with twine. As daylight depleted, the officers decided it would be best to take the remains to the small mortuary in Moffat. The next day, Monday, September 30th, an entire search party scoured the ravine for the rest of the remains. This time around, they found a left forearm and hand wrapped in newspaper. They also discovered another femur and scattered pieces of flesh. The Moffat mortuary was accumulating a staggering amount of flesh and body parts. The police knew they would need serious help, so they contacted John Glaster, who was the professor of forensic medicine at the University of Glasgow. Dr. Gilbert Miller, a pathologist from Edinburgh University, was also contacted for help. The Moffat mortuary was small and cramped, so it was decided that the remains would be taken to the University of Edinburgh's Department of Anatomy. 
Before their removal, Professor Glaster took inventory of the remains. He wrote, quote, of the four bundles recovered during the initial search, the first was wrapped in a blouse and contained two upper arms and four pieces of flesh. The second bundle comprised two thigh bones, two legs from which most flesh had been stripped, and nine pieces of flesh, all wrapped in a pillowcase. The third was a piece of cotton sheeting containing 17 portions of flesh. The fourth parcel, also wrapped in cotton sheeting, consisted of a human trunk, two legs with the feet tied with the hem of a cotton sheet, and some wisps of straw and cotton wool. In addition, other packages opened to reveal two heads, one of which was wrapped in a child's romper. A quantity of cotton wool and sections from the Daily Herald of August 6, 1935. Two forearms with hands attached, but minus the top joints of fingers and thumbs. And several pieces of the skin and flesh. One part was wrapped in the Sunday graphic dated the 15th of September. This final detail would prove crucial in the coming days. The remains amounted to 70 separate pieces. The first step was to try to decide how many bodies were involved, and it was found that despite the vast amount of dismembered parts, they were dealing with only two victims. Furthermore, the bodies had been dismembered by someone who had knowledge of human anatomy and had gone to great lengths to make identification difficult. From the two heads, the killer had cut away the noses, lips, and ears, removed the eyes, and extracted some of the teeth post-mortem. The sex organs had also been removed. The trunk, however, was evidently of a female, as was the less mutilated of the heads. The other head had certain male characteristics. By Friday, October 4th, the Jigsaw murders dominated headlines. The man who had become known as Buck Ruxton had always been an outsider who craved acceptance. In 1899, he was born as Bukhtar Champa Rastomshi Rontanji Hakim. He and his healthy parents lived in Bombay. His mother was French and his father was an Indian Parsi. He was aware of this juxtaposition early on as he battled feeling neither truly French nor truly Indian. His life would be characterized by attempts to rewrite the past, akin to Jay Gatsby. Hakim was fiercely intelligent, but bore a heavy sense of entitlement that flared up when he felt disrespected. He yearned to be a doctor like his father. In 1922, he graduated with a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery from Grant Medical School in Bombay. By the following year, he was captain of the Indian Army's medical services, but he soon grew restless. On a 90-day leave he took in 1926, he took a trip back to England, where he studied for a year before attending medical school in Bombay. In October of that year, he decided to move back to England and go by the name Gabriel Hakim. However, in moving to a new place with a new name, he was also deliberately leaving behind a wife he didn't love back home in Bombay. In May of 1925, Hakim began his arranged marriage to a Parsi woman from a wealthy family. By the time he decided to move the following year, it had been made abundantly obvious that he felt no love for his wife, as revealed through letters he sent to her while serving in the army. Indian and French were Hakim's native tongues, so he struggled greatly when he began taking courses at London's University College Hospital. The next year, 1927, he took the fateful step to move to Edinburgh in hopes of obtaining a fellowship of the Royal Colleges of Surgeons. With a new name and bright prospects, Hakim took a hopeful first step into his new life. 
It was early in 1927 when Hakeem found himself at a cafeteria in Leith that he met a young woman named Isabella Proudfoot Kerr. She wasn't originally from Edinburgh, but from the small town of Whitburn in Les Lothian, which lies equidistant between Edinburgh and Glasgow. She was born to John Kerr and Elizabeth Stewart in February or March of 1901 in the tiny village of Camelon near Falkirk in Scotland. She had a brother named John and three older sisters named Jeannie, Aline, and Lizzie. Isabella attended school in Whitburn, and when she was 19, she met and fell in love with Dutch merchant seaman Tunis Cornelius Van Es. Their whirlwind relationship began when Van Es was docked in Leith. They met in the early weeks of March 1920, and a few days later on the 19th, they hastily made their way to the register office at Gayfield Square in Edinburgh. Neither of their families attended the courthouse union, and Isabella's parents were particularly unhappy about the marriage. They believed she was being impulsive for marrying a man after only a few days. Plus, in their eyes, she was bringing extra shame to the family by marrying an itinerant seaman. But as anticipated, their relationship lasted only days, no more than a week or two at most. Inevitably, Van Ness returned to his ship, and Isabella soon changed her last name back to Kerr. But legally, they remained married. This failed and shameful marriage would be the gossip among her family for years to come. Her parents were ashamed by what they described as her impulsive nature with men. They would once again chide her for her impulsiveness when she met and fell in love with an Indian medical student nearly a decade later. Hakeem and Isabella's impulsive behavior fueled their tempestuous relationship, and they had their first fight not long after they started seeing each other. Hakeem was a deeply jealous man. Although he had a wife of his own in Bombay, he never divorced her to marry Isabella because marrying outside of one's faith as a Parsi was forbidden. But he didn't want Isabella to be married to Van Ness anymore, so he wrote to his wife asking for money to come home. This money wasn't actually to fund his trip back to Bombay. It was used to help Isabella finalize her divorce so that no other man could have her. Then, on April 19th of 1929, Hakeem once again altered his identity. He legally changed his name to Buck Ruxton. Despite his new identity and acquiring the financial means of finalizing Isabella's divorce, Buck Ruxton couldn't shake his feelings of jealousy and distrust. Isabella had plans to travel to Van Ness's homeland of Holland to finalize the divorce, but Buck wasn't ecstatic about her going alone. His long and rambling letter to her provided a glimpse into the dynamics of their relationship. It read, quote, My ever-beloved, devoted, and truthful Belle, listen very, very carefully, and please obey without question. The occasion forces me to take the fullest possible privilege I possess of dealing with you. I have gone into the matter thoroughly and have come to the following conclusions. 1. I shall never be ashamed of you reason, because I know you inside and out, and you are all my trust. Conclusion, throw off your worries and be proud. Two, you may do what you like in this matter in Edinburgh, but you shall not cross British borders and lay your feet on Dutch soil. Reasons, A, you are officially at present Dutch, and if you are on Dutch soil, where is the guarantee that the opposite party won't molest you by detaining you here? B, Scottish laws cannot prevail in Holland, and if the opposite party tricks you, no lawyer on earth can get you back to Britain. 
Scottish laws will be paralyzed to get you from the clutches of Dutch regulations, and I am not prepared to lose you. The last sentence is not a joke. I mean it sincerely. You're a damned fool if you think of setting foot in Holland. Conclusions. I command you not to go to Holland, and if ever you think of doing so, you lose me forever. I shall die of a broken heart. What's the earthly reason of your presence there? Whatever you wish to do in Edinburgh, I am prepared to stand by your side, but do not go contrary to my wishes. Nay, I command you. I regret to have to assume such high-handedness, but I see no other way to protect you. What more do you want than my assurance and written guarantee that I am never going to be ashamed of you? Trying to get out of the frying pan, you are getting into the fire. I can never allow you to do such a silly thing. You are very cheap and so is your lawyer, that cheap that you want to do away with your troubles for 20 pounds. You have no idea of the sleepless nights I have. I can neither read nor sleep and your foolish adventure is the cause. In the name of God, in the name of our holy love, in the name of our prophet, I command you not to go to Holland. What an anxiety for us all in Britain. Funny Dutch laws, damn them all. You shall not cross British borders if you are my dear and obedient Bill. Even if you do not want to be obedient, I want you to obey me. I am shouting at you not to go there, and I am in my full temper. My love forever. Promise me with love you won't go there. Always yours and yours only, Bami. Isabella went to Holland anyway. As she sat in her room at the Central Hotel in Rotterdam in October of 1928, she wrote a letter to Buck. Quote, My beloved Bami, again another day gone. Love, to me it is like another year. I'm simply just pushing in time. I go to bed so early I cannot sleep. You understand? I'm afraid to out when dark, so there's nothing left but bed. I've lived 1,000 times over all our past joys and pray God to let me be beside you very soon. The one thing I love here is the bathroom. Each bedroom had a bathroom and so beautiful. If you were here, dear, I think you would live in the bathroom. The staff are all exceedingly nice and most attentive, but with it all, I would rather live in a room with my balmy. I'm so lonely, dear. All my love, darling. I am breaking my heart for a sight of you. Always your bell. Isabella's marriage to Vaness was dissolved on October 9th, 1928. The couple were living together in southeast London by the autumn of 1929. Although they never married, Isabella used Buck's last name as her own. His religion prevented him from divorcing the wife he left behind, but it didn't mean that he had to announce that he and Isabella were unmarried. The illusion of a legal union was even more important to Buck when their daughter was born. Elizabeth Ava Stewart Ruxton was born on August 27, 1929. In Buck's eyes, this made them a proper family. Isabella's relationship with her family was still rocky after her marriage to Van Ness, but she was still close with her older sisters who resided in Edinburgh. She and Elizabeth took regular trips to visit and stay with them while Buck began looking for a medical practice to buy. He had to travel a ways from London to get to Lancaster, but there he found a practice for sale. In April of 1930, he purchased the practice at 2 Dalton Square. The Ruxton family's prospects were bright, seeing as the panel of patients consisted of a sizable number of upper-middle-class families. 
but money was tight after the practice opened, so Isabella took Elizabeth with her to Edinburgh. There, she earned extra money working as a manager of Woolworth's cafeteria on Princes Street. Both societal norms at the time and Buck himself expected Isabella to fulfill the traditional roles of housewife and mother. But Isabella had been an independent person in Scotland far before she met Buck. She managed countless cafes and had ambitions of pursuing her own business ideas. Isabella wasn't the type to surrender her self-worth. 2 Dalton Square was both the Ruxton family's new home as well as Dr. Buck Ruxton's medical practice. He used three of the four rooms on the ground floor for surgery, a waiting room, and a consultation room. The final room on the ground floor was a kitchen, and the Ruxtons lived on the second floor. The couple filled their home with expensive furniture and decorations. Buck wanted Isabella's beauty to be immortalized in oils, so he commissioned a painter, an art piece that would also ultimately add to the lavishness of their new abode. He insisted on being present for each session, as he didn't want anything inappropriate happening between Isabella and the painter. He couldn't even stand the thought of her being alone with another man. Buck charmed the people of Lancaster, and he soon took care of most of the patients in the town. He even treated poor families without charge. It was like he was the guardian angel of Lancaster. He took sick people off the street and treated them, and even restored a young girl's eyesight. When police constable Norman Wilson broke his nose in the line of duty, Dr. Buck Ruxton took him into surgery without ever sending him a bill. Buck and Isabella hired servants to help around the house. His medical practice became busier, and their second daughter, Diana, was born on the start of the new year in 1935. On the exterior, they were an idyllic couple. They were well off, had a lovely home, two healthy daughters, and a life of ease with servants. But inside the walls of number two Dalton Square, Buck's jealousy and controlling nature were stifling. His temper was volatile and frightening, and it took a toll on Isabella. Eventually, he would settle back into the man Isabella fell in love with, but it never took long for the cycle to start over again. Isabella easily fit into the social circles of Lancaster. She loved going out dancing, but since Buck was often tired after work, she sometimes went alone and met up with friends. This only served to fuel Buck's jealousy, and he began to suspect that she was meeting other men. The smallest things, whether real or imagined, triggered his temper. Even when they returned from a night out together, he would accuse her of dancing with another man and scold her for disrespecting him. Buck was raised to believe respect was a central tenet and transgressions would be punished. On one such night, Buck forced Isabella to take off her shoes and demanded she run up and down the stairs barefoot. He stood at the bottom of the stairs and brandished an unsheathed knife. Another time, Buck sat on the throne he kept in one of his rooms and forced her to strip nearly naked, kneel before him, and kiss his feet. The servants at 2 Dalton Square witnessed the disturbing and toxic relationship, which caused many of them to leave and be replaced. The Ruxton house had a severe issue with turnover because of how often servants witness abuse. Charlotte Smith worked for the Ruxtons for six months. As she worked in the kitchen one Sunday, she witnessed Isabella come downstairs clutching her left arm and crying. Her arm was horribly bruised. She told Buck that she would leave him, but he scolded her and told her she would not. He even told Charlotte not to let Isabella leave with the children as she wasn't fit to take care of them. Agnes Oxley was also disturbed by the events she witnessed in the home. 
One day, she was with Isabella in her bedroom, helping to dress the children. Buck entered the room and told Isabella she was wanted downstairs. Isabella said that she didn't feel like seeing anybody that morning. He told her for the second time that she was wanted downstairs. She repeated that she didn't feel like going, and he ordered her for the third and final time that he wanted her down the stairs. She reluctantly got up, and as she exited, Agnes heard her ask Buck if he had the knife. When Agnes went downstairs, she couldn't find either of them. Buck eventually returned and told Agnes not to let the children out of her sight. It's likely that what the servants at 2 Dalton Square witnessed was merely the tip of the iceberg. One can only imagine the distress and humiliation Isabella suffered when she was left alone with Buck. It was late in the year of 1931 when the Ruxtons were expecting a third child. A growing family was everything that Buck wanted, but Isabella felt differently. She wasn't the same person she had been when she first met Buck. Her sparkle was gone as a result of Buck's jealous and abusive behavior, and she felt trapped. With a third child on the way, it would take immense courage to leave Buck, and she felt there was only one way out. Isabella's sister, Jeannie, who was 15 years older than her, received a disturbing telegram from Buck urging her to come to Lancaster immediately. He met her at the front door and took her into the consulting room. Jeannie was shocked to hear that Isabella had tried to gas herself and asked Buck if he had been the source of her misery. Naturally, he denied that he was at fault and insisted that he was a loving husband. In fact, he believed that this was Isabella's way of trying to ruin him, and he refused to allow Jeannie upstairs to see her sister. When he calmed down, he led Jeannie upstairs to see her sister, but even then, he was controlling. As Isabella lay in bed, he demanded she tell her sister the truth. Of course, what he really meant was his truth. Isabella said that the gassing had been an accident, but Buck didn't believe her and slapped her across the face. You must tell the truth, he told her. Jeannie was utterly shocked as she witnessed Buck pushing Isabella to admit that she wanted to kill herself. The pregnant Isabella was tired and distressed, so she asked Jeannie to take her and the two girls back to Edinburgh with her so she could be away from Buck in the house. This, of course, ignited his violent rage and he threatened Jeannie and Isabella. He told them he would cut the throats of both of them and his daughters if they tried to leave. But as soon as his temper resurfaced, it subsided once again, and Jeannie ended up staying the night. When Jeannie left for home the next morning, Buck finally agreed that Isabella should take the girls with her to Edinburgh for a little trip. He even took them all to the railway station at Lancaster Castle to see them off. This wouldn't be the last attempt Isabella would make on her life. In the spring of 1932, heartache loomed, and it was nearly time for Isabella to give birth. Elizabeth and Diana were excited to find out they were having a brother or a sister, and Buck made arrangements for Isabella to give birth in Edinburgh. He felt she would received the best care there. But on that Sunday evening, April 17th, Isabella fell in the room she shared with her daughters. She bled profusely, and Buck called Dr. Leonard Mather for help. He immediately made his way to 2 Dalton Square and rushed upstairs. He saw Isabella laying in bed. On a side table was a full-term baby boy, stillborn. Her afterbirth was still in place, and he was able to get the hemorrhaging under control. Isabella's body recovered from the incident, but her mental state deteriorated during the summer and autumn of 1932. 
Buck documented her moods in his journal. On July 10th of that year, Isabella threatened suicide, and he locked up his medicine cabinet for safety. The next day, she went out and told a woman she had taken poison. Toward the end of September, she left clothes hanging on a rack near a coal fire in the children's bedroom. When Buck mentioned it, she asserted that it wasn't dangerous. Buck wrote that on October 11th, Isabella called him a racial slur in front of her sister. On November 15th, Isabella tried to kill herself by swallowing about 40 pills. Rumors about the constant arguments between Isabella and Buck quickly circulated Lancaster. There was talk that Isabella was going about with other men, but this gossip may have unwittingly been started by Buck himself, as he often told others that Isabella was being unfaithful. Vera Shelton, another one of the many servants employed at the Ruxton house, also witnessed her fair share of disturbing events until she left in May of 1935. At around 11.30 one night, she heard a bang and her name being called by Isabella. Vera rushed into Isabella's room and found Buck grabbing her. Isabella cried out for Vera to get Buck away from her. He ran out of the room, calling Isabella a prostitute. Vera locked the door of Isabella's room behind him. She saw that Isabella's nightdress was torn and she had a bruise on her arm. There was a broken telephone lying on the bedroom floor. On another afternoon, Vera witnessed Buck accusing Isabella of opening a private letter of his. Eliza Hunter also worked at 2 Dalton Square for a time before she couldn't take it anymore. Her health had declined and she cited Buck's conduct and the constant fights as the causes. She bore witness to the domestic abuse Isabella suffered at the hands of Buck on many occasions. It had only been two months into Eliza's employment when she saw Isabella pack her clothes and leave the house. Buck told her that Isabella wouldn't return alive and that he would bring her back to the mortuary. He also asked one of the other maids if she would now be the mother to his children. Another time, Eliza was working in the backyard when she heard Isabella cry out for her. Upon entering the kitchen, she saw Buck standing in front of Isabella holding a knife. Isabella said he held the knife against her throat, but Buck denied even having a knife in his hand despite Eliza seeing it. Eliza also witnessed a scene similar to that which Vera saw. She rushed into Isabella's room one night after hearing her name being shouted. Eliza saw Buck with his hands around Isabella's throat, and she struggled to breathe. Buck ordered Eliza out of the room, as this was a matter between him and his wife. Buck and Isabella constantly argued about money. After an argument about the gas bill, Isabella took Buck's chloroform bottle and went to her bedroom. She inhaled the mixture and turned on the gas. When she recovered, she told him that she didn't feel safe in his company, and it was time for them to take a break from one another. It had worked for them before, so Isabella and the children set off to Edinburgh to stay with Jeannie. Judging by the letters Isabella wrote to Buck, the time apart seemed to do the trick. She wrote to him, quote, My dearest, beloved Bami, I have an angel husband and I am very grateful for it, but no matter whether you are angel or devil, I love you and will continue to love you lifelong. Dear, how I miss you. If my heart had been literally taken from my body and grafted to yours, I could not belong to you more completely. Their bond was poisonous, but Isabella never seemed to be able to break free despite the abuse she suffered. When he told her he would visit her in Edinburgh, she wrote back, quote, My dearest, beloved Bami, I shall be at the station hours before time and thinking all sorts of loving things. I want to take you in my arms again. 
I say here with my hands on my heart that I never have anything but the most tender feelings in the world for you. Before he arrived in Edinburgh, he wrote to her, quote, My beloved, faithful, and virtuous better half, my pride and pretensions soar high when I read your letters. I want to assure you that I shall always keep an honorable manhood for you and a stainless name free from shame for my bell. Her letter back to him read, quote, My darling Bami, I pray for you earnestly each night. Please keep a brave heart. I am not ignorant of your sacrifices or of how hard you work or the circumstances or the conditions you work under. Very soon we will be united again, and then we three, you and I and our baby, will be so happy. We must indeed be grateful to the Almighty for our gift of mutual love and understanding of each other. Even after the grief of the stillborn and the attempted suicides, Isabella was pregnant again. She wrote to him, quote, Each day our love matures and becomes more beautiful. Surely it is a great blessing to feel we can trust each other in every way. That is not the happy lot of many. Think of the winter of our lives when sisters and brothers have their own interests and perhaps we have lost touch with all old friends, when we are too worn and tired to seek new companionships, when the world generally has finished with us, what concerns are left then? That is a time when Bami and Belle will draw up the chairs comfortably to a nice coal fire in a quaint wee cottage, sigh contentedly, and smile into each other's eyes. Faded, perhaps, with the passing years, but still bright with fond love for each other. On July 20th, 1933, William Ruxton was born at 2 Dalton Square. His sisters Elizabeth and Diana lovingly called him Billy Boy. That October, there was another arrival at the Ruxton home. 17-year-old Mary Jane Rogerson began working at the home as a live-in nursemaid. She was born in October of 1915 in a village called Overton. She had a large family of 11 siblings. Although her mother died when Mary was young, she was doted upon by her father and stepmother. While working at 2 Dalton Square, she visited her parents once a week. In the spring of 1934, Buck wrote in his journal that Isabella had made a habit out of chloroforming herself and had gotten sick as a result. Her condition worsened upon hearing the news that her mother passed away. One night, Buck peered into the children's room and noticed that the gas was turned on. He angrily confronted Isabella, but admitted in his journal that he didn't know whether or not it was an accident. A week later, one of the maids found Isabella lying unconscious in her bedroom with the gas on. She left for Edinburgh for another break, but this time it didn't remind her of her love for Buck. Robert Edmondson and his sister Barbara were a decade younger than the Ruxtons, but they were all good friends. It was no surprise that Buck soon became jealous of the handsome young man that Isabella was friendly to. It didn't help that on Wednesday, April 4th, she went out dancing with him. Buck did what he did best and stewed on all of the scenarios of infidelity playing in his head. This jealousy grew even more when he reflected on Isabella's marriage to Van Ness. His frantic journal scribbles detail how Isabella revealed that she and Van Ness never consummated their marriage, but Buck didn't believe her. Once again, he lost his temper and lashed out at Isabella. The difference was that this time, she arrived at the police station. It was Friday, April 6, when she wished to report an attempted assault. When Buck was found sitting in his car, he was asked to come to the police station. 
When he saw Isabella there, he flew into a rage and told detectives that his wife had been unfaithful and he would be justified in murdering her. No charges were brought against Buck, and the detectives' comments suggested that they saw Buck as the injured party, seeing as his wife was going around town having affairs with other men. In the Ottoman winter of 1934, Buck's journal entries became increasingly paranoid over Isabella's friendship with Bobby. Buck wrote about how she asked Bobby to go out to the movies with her in front of him. He also wrote that they had gone out dancing, but she stayed out hours after he left. The next day, he believed she had poisoned his coffee after it tasted off and he vomited the whole night. An eerie calm descended upon the Ruxton house in January of 1935. It had been five years since Buck commissioned the oil painting of Isabella, so he paid for a portrait photo of her to be taken. Isabella wore a formal dress and a dainty tiara. This piece didn't last long, and on May 27th, the same officer that Buck had treated for a broken nose was called to the Ruxton house. Buck was in another one of his rages, threatening to commit two murders in Dalton Square that night. As the months progressed, his suspicions and jealousy toward Bobby festered. By September 7th, he had become dangerously unhinged. That Saturday, Isabella went to Edinburgh with the Edmondsons. The trip was originally planned for August and was just going to be Isabella and Barbara, since the Edmondsons had family in Edinburgh. After these plans fell through, Isabella rearranged the trip and extended the invitation to Barbara's parents and Bobby, who would have to drive in a separate car. As they left on Saturday, Buck followed closely behind them. He was suspicious that Isabella planned the trip to sleep with Bobby in a hotel in Edinburgh. The group was unable to stay with the Edmondson relatives as their aunt was sick. Isabella used her knowledge of the area to suggest that they stay at the Adelphi Hotel in Leith. They booked four rooms, one for Mr. and Mrs. Edmondson, and then one each for Barbara, Bobby, and Isabella. Bobby stayed in room 44, and Isabella stayed in room 49. Buck stayed in a hotel nearby and then went to the Adelphi early the next morning to check the guest book. He saw Isabella's signature, and he now had all the evidence, in his mind, of Isabella's infidelity. On Monday, September 9th, Buck stopped Bobby in Dalton Square. He didn't reveal any of the anguish he felt and was friendly when he asked about where they stayed on their trip. Isabella told him that she slept at her sister's house, not the hotel. But if he had inquired even a little further, he would have realized that they slept in different rooms. Buck kept his feelings under wraps for a few days, but on Friday, September 13th, Agnes Oxley overheard the couple fighting. She distinctly heard Buck call Isabella a prostitute, something he had made a habit out of doing. The next day, Agnes and the newest maid, Mary Jane Rogerson, worked alongside each other in the kitchen. Buck entered the kitchen and told them that Isabella was going to Blackpool that evening to meet her sisters. He asked Mary if she would mind staying that night to look after the children. Isabella returned from her trip to Blackpool after midnight on Sunday the 15th. Buck awaited her return, but Mary and the children were asleep. Around 6.30 a.m., Buck called Agnes Oxley and told her that she didn't need to come into work that day. He told her that Isabella and Mary went on a trip to Edinburgh and he would be taking care of the children. Agnes had never missed a day of work at 2 Dalton Square, and it struck her and her husband as odd that Buck would call so early in the morning to not come in. When the newspaper was delivered that morning, Buck told the young lady delivering that his wife and maid had gone to Scotland. 
He was also the one to answer the door when four pints of milk were delivered at 10 a.m. It wasn't completely unheard of for Buck to answer the door, especially since he claimed that Isabella and Mary were away on their trip. He told her that he had bandages around his hand because he had jammed it. A couple hours later, Buck came home with eight gallons of gasoline in his front seat. He saw Alwyn Hampshire, one of his patients, as he parked his car and asked her if she and her mother could help him do some cleaning as his wife and maid were out of town and he had injured his hand. When she entered to Dalton Square, she noticed that the carpet on the stairs and the landing were removed, and Buck asked her to scrub the staircase clean. Mrs. Hampshire was led upstairs to the bathroom. She noticed the bathtub was a dirty yellow color up to about six inches from the top. When Mrs. Hampshire went downstairs to the waiting room, she saw rolled up carpets. In the backyard were the rest of the carpets from the stairs, and she noted that one appeared to be heavily stained with blood. She also spotted a shirt and large surgical towel stained with blood. Each afternoon the following week, Buck lit fires in his yard to burn blood-stained items. He told his maids that the blood came from his hand, and he instructed them to keep the fire going as he continued to toss items in. The ashes had to be swept up several times that week, and Buck's attempt at burning the items weren't always successful. One of the maids even recognized the scraps of singed fabric from clothing items belonging to Mary Jane Rogerson. Mary's brother Peter arrived at 2 Dalton Square on Monday, September 23rd. He and Mary's parents were concerned because they hadn't heard from her in over a week, and she visited every Sunday. He told Peter that Isabella and Mary had gone to Edinburgh and would be back in a week to two weeks' time. Sunday, September 29th began as a bright, fine day, but it would end with the grisly discovery of parceled human remains near the Devil's Beef Tub. The mortuary in Moffat was small, and the air quickly filled with the smell of decomposing, maggot-infested flesh. Professor Glaster and Dr. Gilbert Miller had already determined that one of the bodies was female, as discerned by the skull and the pelvis. The other skull appeared to be that of a man's, but many distinguishing features from both bodies had been removed. The terminal joints of the fingers of two of the recovered hands had also been carefully removed. This was the work of someone who both deliberately wanted to hide signs of injury to indicate cause of death, as well as prevent identification. Professor Glaster wrote, quote, The bodies had been neatly dismembered into portions convenient for transport, and that had been done entirely by cutting through the joints with a knife. There were no signs of the use of a saw. The remains were transported to the Department of Forensic Science at Edinburgh University, where the human jigsaw puzzle would be reassembled. Meanwhile, photographs were taken of where the parcels were found in the ravine. These photographs helped detectives determine that it was likely that the body parts were tossed during the night. Whoever had done so was sufficiently familiar with the local area to realize it would be remote and difficult to reach, but not so familiar as to know that there was a shallow stream down below. This was significant because there had been heavy rainfall in recent days and the stream had flooded. This explained why the body parts were found strewn over a considerable distance, as the flood water had dislodged them. Based on the evidence gathered from the weather rain gauge and the state of the putrefying remains, detectives determined that the bodies had been thrown into the ravine immediately before or during the flood, sometime between the 16th and 18th of September. Late that same night, back in Lancaster, Mr. and Mrs. Rogerson found themselves at the doorstep of 2 Dalton Square, and Buck invited them inside. 
They were incredibly worried about Mary because it had been so long since they heard from her. Buck assured them that he didn't know where she was, but suspected that she and Isabella ran off to Edinburgh because his safe had been broken into. He told them not to worry. The women would be back when the money ran out. But the Rogersons told Buck that they were going to the Lancaster police station across Dalton Square. On October 2nd, Dr. Miller unpacked boxes of the decomposing body parts at Edinburgh University's anatomy department. He washed the remains to remove dirt and applied ether to the soft tissue to kill the maggots that were feasting on the flesh. Then, he placed the remains in formalin, a formaldehyde solution, for three days in order to preserve them. It quickly became apparent how extensive the work of dismemberment and mutilation had been by the perpetrator. Once an additional left foot and right arm were located, the individual body parts totaled 70. With the remains now properly preserved, Professor Glaster and Dr. Miller began assembling the jigsaw puzzle on Sunday, October 5th. The remains were an amorphous mass of putrefaction, but among the decay were recognizable shapes, like hands and feet. The two heads were so outrageously defiled that they resembled rotting pumpkins. So far, they had been able to discern body number one and body number two, as they called them. The head of body number one had been severed just below the chin. A thorough attempt had been made at removing identifying features. The nose and both ears had been sliced off, and the eyes had been gouged out. The killer hadn't stopped there, though. A large piece of the scalp had been peeled away from the right side of the head, and most of the skin on the forehead and face had also been removed. The lips were cut away, and the two upper central incisor teeth had been removed and the tongue protruded from the gap. Only a small chunk of hair remained on the scalp just in front of where the left ear had been, and it was a light color. The part of the scalp that remained on the skull had a Y-shaped laceration. The limbs that appeared to be from body number one had been expertly disarticulated at the joints, but there was no torso found for body number one. By this time, Professor Glaster and Dr. Miller concluded that both bodies were female. The head of body number two had been removed from the torso at a lower level than in the case of body number one. It didn't seem possible, but there was even more mutilation on this head. The nose, ears, eyes, and most of the skin had been savagely removed. Only tiny patches of the scalp remained. The lips had been removed and nearly all the teeth pulled out. The swollen tongue protruded between the jaws and the tip had been sliced off. The trunk of body number two had been separated into two portions, and the spine had been severed in the upper lumbar region. Three breasts had been recovered, as had two pieces of human remains that were identified as the external parts of genital organs, with some pubic hair still in place. Whoever had performed the brutal disarticulation and dismemberment had sliced through the upper part of one victim's vagina to remove the uterus. Complete with both uterine tubes and ovaries, it was agreed to have come from body number two, that of the older, more masculine woman. Professor James Cooper Brash was called upon for help since he was an expert anatomist. The rearticulation of the two bodies was a slow and painstaking process, consisting mostly of trial and error. Professor Brash used x-rays to prove beyond reasonable doubt when he correctly reassembled parts. The accuracy of the reconstruction depended on such factors as the height, stature, and age of the victims. When the bodies were recovered from Garden Homeland, the most mutilated head had been put with the trunk of body number two. 
They appeared to go together, but Professor Brash needed conclusive proof. He lifted each head in turn and placed them at the top of the trunk of body number two. Key to his conclusions were comparisons using x-rays of the vertebrae remaining on each head and those on the trunk. Professor Glaster and Dr. Miller's original assumption had been proved correct. The next step was to establish which of the forearms and thighs and legs were from the body with the trunk, as that would provide the most complete body of the two. He took the limb segments that matched each other in left and right segments according to measurements and re-articulated upper arms with forearms at the elbow joints and thighs with lower legs at the knee joints. Based on the measurements of the bones, it was concluded that one victim was taller than the other. The longer bone limbs articulated perfectly with the trunk. Once a left foot, right forearm, and right hand were discovered in the following days, body number two was officially the most complete. The fact that the eyes, ears, lips, fingertips, and teeth had been removed illustrated not only the killer's desire to remove identifying features, but also an understanding that such features can reveal signs of asphyxia. After careful consideration, it was concluded that it took about five hours to butcher body number two and three hours for body number one. Isabella and Mary had been reported missing after Buck was questioned on Friday, October 11th. On the same day, Mary's stepmother positively identified the garments recovered with the bodies to have belonged to Mary. By Sunday, Buck Ruxton was charged with first-degree murder for the murder of Mary Jane Rogerson. By the end of October, all the local dentists were contacted to see who had treated Isabella and may have her records. The police strongly believed that Isabella was the second victim in the ravine. While Buck was in custody, detectives searched to Dalton Square. Despite the redecorating and the torn-up carpeting, small bloodstains adorned the banisters and larger stains covered the stairs. In fact, there were so many bloodstains throughout the house that getting samples processed was an incredibly arduous task, which was made even more difficult by the distance between Dalton Square and the labs in Scotland. Professor Glaster made a ludicrous but necessary request. He wanted parts of the house moved to the laboratory in Scotland for easier testing. Very delicately, much of the staircase, sections of walls, and most of the bathroom were dismantled and transported to Glasgow University. Professor Glaster meticulously numbered each step and handrail. Of the 14 rails and stair surfaces he inspected, he found around 80 bloodstains. His hypothesis was that Isabella, body number two, had been killed by strangulation since the parts of the body that reveal asphyxia had been removed. When Mary, body number one, walked in on the murder, she received blows to the face. Her cause of death couldn't be ascertained because her torso was missing. In order to prepare the evidence for court, Professor Glaser and Dr. Miller continued to search for ways to further prove the identity of the two victims. They called upon Professor Sidney Smith for further assistance. Professor Brash, who had lent his expertise, was about to get creative and revolutionize forensic science as a result. Professor Brash had an idea inspired by the portrait photos of Isabella and Mary from the newspaper. He remarked that the photos showed that the proportions of their features were not only unmistakably different, but that they corresponded in a general way to the proportions of the respective heads found in the ravine. The proportions were so distinct from each other that head number one couldn't belong to Isabella Ruxton, and head number two couldn't belong to Mary Rogerson. Attempts had been made in history to authenticate the skulls of notable figures like Bach and Dante by comparing them to death masks and paintings. 
This had never been attempted in a criminal case, and these comparisons had never been done using actual photographs. Professor Brash had photos of Isabella and Mary printed to life-size scale. Then, the skulls were photographed at the same angle as the women's photos, which were also printed to scale. It was a time-consuming process photographing the skulls at the exact angle and distance from the camera. The flesh was removed from the skulls, which were then mounted in a holder with a metal frame that could be rotated to various angles. Isabella's dress and tiara had been acquired, and the goal was to recreate her portrait photo in the lens so the skull could be accurately superimposed onto her picture. The photographer, Cecil Thomas, pinned pieces of twine horizontally to divide the frame into three sections, which consisted of the tiara, Isabella's head, and the dress. The next step was identifying the victim's teeth. It had to be determined whether the missing teeth had been extracted in a dental procedure or if it was post-mortem mutilation by the killer. Dr. Arthur Hutchinson was the dean of the Edinburgh Dental School. He conducted tests on dead sheep, extracting their teeth and observing the extent of blood clotting in the sockets and the effects of putrefaction. He also extracted teeth from a dying sheep while its heart was still beating to compare the results. Eight teeth were missing from Mary's skull, two of which were removed recently due to the open sockets. On Isabella's skull, 29 of her 32 teeth were missing. 14 of them had been removed post-mortem. Her skull also had evidence of a dental clasp, which further proved it was Isabella's because she wore a denture with a visible clasp. Although the fingertips had been cut off of Isabella's hands, Mary's right hand had been recovered. Mary's fingertips had been lifted from various items in her bedroom, but the recovered hand was putrefying. The epidermis, or outer layer of the skin, had been lost. Up until this point, this was the only way fingerprints had been collected. In order to test if the dermis, or lower layer of the skin, has the same fingerprint characteristics as the outer layer, one of the detectives burned his fingertip with a cigarette. Once the skin blistered, he peeled off the surface layer and fingerprinted the raw dermis underneath. It matched his original print perfectly. With this new discovery that the dermis had the same fingerprint ridges as the epidermis, Mary's right hand was fingerprinted. These were revolutionary techniques that brought forensic science into a new age. This evidence was used in court to convict Dr. Buck Ruxton guilty of murdering Isabella Kerr Ruxton and Mary Jane Rogerson. He was executed by hanging on May 12th. It was the 2nd of May, 1936, when Isabella's remains made the journey by hearse from Ancoats Hospital in Manchester to Edinburgh. The hearse was met at 6 a.m. by a police officer and was directed to a funeral home where it remained while Isabella's sisters made arrangements for a funeral at Warston Crematorium. On the same day, Mary's remains, which were placed in a plain oak coffin, were interred in an unmarked grave in the churchyard of St. Helen's Church near her birthplace. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next Story from the Mortuary.